0: Season 3, episode 6 of the Birding Life podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. Have you ever wanted to take your birding to a deeper level? Are you feeling seabird withdrawals after the Flocked Marion cruise? Well then this is the episode for you. For this episode I'm joined by Cape Town birder Vincent Ward. Vincent was a guide on the Flocked Marion cruise and is also a guide for Cape Town pelagics. As someone who started his journey as a seabird scientist, he has a lot of experience with this group of birds. This episode is jam-packed with tips and advice, as well as lots of fascinating information. Oh, and what does it mean to become a petrolhead? Well, you'll need to listen to the episode to find out. Vincent mentions Fancy Peacock's books, as well as Peter Ryan's Seabird book. Both are available on the Birding Life's online store. So if you are looking for these books or for optics for birding, be sure to check out the store. There is a link to the shop in the notes of the show, as well as links that are mentioned in this episode. So let's get into today's episode.
1: The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser Bird Logging app. Spot, Plot, Play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other. Amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Check out our website at www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our various social media platforms, as well as the other podcasts we host. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. So, let us get into this week's episode of the Birding Life podcast.
0: So, Vincent, welcome to the Birding Life podcast. We've been chatting a long time about doing this, chatting over Facebook Messenger, and it's flipping awesome to have you on the on the on an episode. So, welcome.
2: Yeah. uh, Thank you, Adam. And uh, sort of just a a big hi to everyone who is listening and to all of those friends and uh, new faces that uh, a lot of us met on Flock. I know we'll be touching on a little bit on Flock, but yeah, just sort of hi to everyone. And uh, I hope everybody enjoys it. I think we're going to have a fantastic podcast, got a lot to to cover. So let's get on with it. One thing that we
0: find in this modern social media um, age is that you know, we often get to chat to people and like I already spoke about the fact that I've chatted to you many times over Facebook Messenger and you helped me a lot with planning to get down to Cape Town, put me in contact with some fantastic people. But it was really great to get to meet you on the Flock to Marion cruise. How did you find the seven days out at sea? I think it was fantastic.
2: Uh, absolutely. I think uh, there wasn't a single person who stood on deck for for even the slightest period of, of time that didn't think this was probably one of the, the the top or if not the top birding experiences they've had in in recent memory as a as a guide spending all those long hours out on, on deck it was it was a lot of hard work but incredibly rewarding it was fantastic to see all the enthusiasm amongst all the all the the flockers on the uh, on the cruise to marion and then the fact i got two lifers was an absolute bonus as well so it shows that uh, even those of us who who've Sort of been on cruises, been on research trips, and done seabirding, uh, we're still able to, to eke out uh, those much needed lifers. What were the two lifers you got? Uh, tropical shearwater. Uh, it's the first time I've had a, an undisputed uh, uh, tropical shearwater. And then it was fantastic to actually clinch uh, an undisputed Tristan. Uh, I've had several birds which. Uh, may have potentially been Tristan in the in the past, but up until uh, recently, the the field guides firmly believed that there was nowhere to to tell these things apart, and it was only due to having people like Peter Harrison and Peter Ryan on the boat that I think we we finally got some birds which uh, everybody was happy to to tick, and and call as as Tristan. I think it was one of the highlights of the Flock to Marion
0: cruise for me was the fact that all credit goes to BirdLife South Africa, the caliber of guards that were on the cruise. And you spoke about um, Peter Harrison, you know, being able to rub shoulders with the caliber of people. I think it was the first time that MSC has had car guards on the cruise.
2: Absolutely. I've still got those uh, uh jackets uh, sort of packed in. So if uh, bird guiding doesn't work out, I can uh, rub shoulders with the, the guys at my my local food lovers stick on that uh, on that jacket and, and get to work
0: so like you mentioned we've got a lot we're going to chat about and i'm really excited about today's chat for those who went on the flock to marion cruise who are having seabird withdrawals this is the episode that you want to listen to but even if you weren't on the flock to marion cruise the the what we're going to chat about today i believe is going to not just help those who want to do seabirding but it's going be a lot of practical advice which i'm really excited to get across but before we get into today's chat, you know a lot of people listening to this might know who you are, and a lot of people might have no idea who the heck you are. So, besides being a birder, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, I'm a, a Cape Town boy, born and born and bred, and I think that will uh, sort of uh, sort of explain a, a lot in terms of why I do have an interest in in seabirds. But uh, um, outside of birding, I have a passion for for anything to to do with, with flight. Where. Anything with uh, wings really sort of gets me sort of interested. Uh, be it birds, be it uh, um, anything in in aviation. The my, my bookshelf is probably sort of equally bird guides, bird uh, biology books, and and aviation books as well. So so those are my my, my two big co-passions. And besides that, I also have a huge interest in natural history, just in general. In in particular, uh, geology is a big interest of mine. I had uh, vague uh, thoughts of becoming a geologist when I was picking a a career, but natural history and ornithology won out. So I still like to sort of keep up with uh, with what's happening. And when that uh, Cape Rock jumper is sitting on that rock, I'm I'm both equally interested in the bird and and its perch.
0: You know, you speak about your bookshelf. What is your your favorite book on your bookshelf i know this is a very difficult question but what are some of your favorite books let's say
2: at the moment uh pretty much anything by by fancy peacock i I think we are incredibly lucky as south africans to have uh fancy um writing books uh and uh his firefinch app as well the little bit that has been released is has definitely moved up to my my number one spot um, I, I think he just has this really unique way of, 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 of cutting down to the the, the the sort of core, the key feature of, of ID, not just in terms of plumage, but behavior, call. I, I think yeah, you know, anything by Fancy at the moment. When I go on tours, I don't take a field guide besides having just an app on my phone. The one field guide that always makes it into my, my backpack is Fancy's LBJ book. Um, that is absolutely crucial. And then whenever I do go out birding, uh, particularly uh, looking for for waders at West Coast National Park, Farnseed's, uh waders book is, is right there with me sort of next to the bins and next to the scope.
0: I think that Firefinch app is really going to be a game changer as we go forward. You know, just that small sample we had, just the way that you know, Fancy's able to simplify things down. The one thing when you speak to Fancy is he's this incredibly intelligent person. And like you said, we're incredibly blessed to have a guy, a cali- uh, someone of his caliber, you know, as as one of our leading birders, ornithologists in our country. But the one thing about Fancy is his, his approach to identification and, and how he's able to simplify things down. You know, there's almost like when you read his books, there's a lesson in all of that for all of us, you know, how he's able to not just, you know, see the the bigger picture of the bird. But he's able to see the bigger picture of the bird, but also the finer details. There's, there's things that he points out in identification that a lot of people just brush over. And he's got this absolutely meticulous approach to bird identification.
2: I absolutely agree. And you can see any of the products that uh, Fancy has produced are, are for birders. He, he kind of knows the pitfalls. He kind of knows where sort of people do go wrong, have gone wrong, where he's gone wrong, and he's he's filling in those things. It's, it's not as as technical or as, as sort of almost academic as, as some of the other guides, he, he, he knows sort of where people's weaknesses are, are likely to lie and his, his guides and Firefinch have, have really filled in, in in that sort of valuable niche of getting people to learn to ID these birds and not just be a reference as to sort of double checking or going through what you you think you saw. So
0: let's rewind a little bit. We're speaking about Fancy and that, but how did your birding journey start?
2: I, um, compared to a lot of birders, particularly a lot of the guys who are on the scene at the moment, I started fairly late. And I think I'm quite unique amongst most birders in that I actually have a, a start date, set start date. And that was my 18th birthday. Prior to that, I'd had sort of a few sort of stumbles in terms of wanting to, to, to start birding um, I was always incredibly frustrated by the fact that many uh, field guides, up until that point, the the birds that you were seeing in the in the plates looked nothing like the birds that uh, I, I was seeing out in the field, and and that mismatch didn't uh, sort of really inspire me to to actually pursue birding at at that point. But when that first Sassel came out, it, it was this absolute game changer where the cape robin chat in that book looked like the cape robin chat i was seeing on that branch or the 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 weavers i was seeing the the shorebirds and uh particularly the, the seabirds as well um, a lot of the birds prior to to that all the seabirds on those plates looked the same and, and there wasn't anything that, that sort of stood out uh, and the, the text was particularly helpful in separating these things but when sassel came out it was this massive game changer so um uh, I can't remember who gave me that CNA voucher on my 18th birthday, but but thank you. It's, uh it just shows uh that it was an absolute life changer. And uh, and I still have uh have a copy of that first edition of Sassel and and it will always sort of have that pride of place on my my bookshelf as being the, the sort of keystone sort of starting point of my of, of my birding journey.
0: You also Earlier on worked as a seabird scientist. Now, tell us about that part of your your birding journey and also what the heck does a seabird scientist do?
2: So uh, my sort of foray into seabird science started literally a few months after I got that first copy of Sussel. We were unfortunate in the winter of 1994, we had a large bulk carrier, the Apollo C, sink off the Cape Coast. And that ended up uh, oiling tens of thousands of now uh, endangered or critically endangered African penguins. And I ended up uh, volunteering at uh, SANCOB for oh, close to about eight months. And it was during that time that uh, th- there were lots of seabird biologists, people who worked in conservation and in seabird conservation in particular who were then seconded to what at the time was one of the largest seabird rescues ever attempted. And it was during those eight months of um, sort of being in the trenches with these guys, getting to know them, getting to hear their stories, getting to hear their enthusiasm about about seabirds, that that suddenly these uh, birds that I just thought were were boring gulls sort of that you had these guys who had a passion for this thing. And no, no, it's more than just boring gulls. There's this massive group of, of birds that, uh, in some cases, live in colonies of thousands or tens of thousands. And th- there is an opportunity to get out and work on these birds. And that actually sort of caught my, my attention. And, and then the first uh, sort of foray that I had out onto the islands was one of the biologists who was working on, on, on the seabird uh, rescue. He sort of said, well, why don't you come out to Dasson Island, uh, sort of take over my my work for a while, while well, he went back to, to Cape Town for a bit of R&R and to spend some time in the library at UCT. Um, and then the, those first few uh, days, I think it was probably about a week on Dasson Island, sort of absolutely changed me in, in terms of getting out, seeing these amazing places. And then the first sort of uh, foray into, into science, doing doing proper work. I was doing a my first year of BSc at the time, and suddenly all of the techniques that you were learning that were sort of in the textbook suddenly became real and, and sort of really this became a real exciting thing and something I, I wanted to pursue. So uh, from, from that uh, uh, sort of a few weeks on, on Dasson Island that then translated into 13 months studying Cape Gannets on Bird Island in Algoa Bay, and then from that uh, translated into doing another five years of work on Cape Gannets at the Lambert's Bay Colony. And then from that, I got a more permanent position um, working on seabirds with Cape Nature and over sort of various twists and turns that uh, led to the guiding and the consulting I, I, I do at the moment. Yeah, sorry, do sorry, you go to it, a carry on. bit about uh, sort of what seabirds in, involve, or the, the science involves? In terms of sort of what a seabird scientist does, it's all informed by your, your research question. So when you embark on any form of research, you have this, this question in mind, uh, the, the question that at the end of the day, when you're writing up your paper or you're doing your report, that's the answer that you 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 uh, that you want to have. And that informs the, the methods that you do. So uh, whether it's... Uh, uh, sort of going and, and, and doing sort of simple counts, whether you're physically handling birds, whether you're doing a ringing, th- that's the the main thing you you're doing in terms of, of of doing that that question. So it can be like I said, it can be as mundane as as just going and, and counting um, a rooster birds or a colony of birds on a on a regular basis to something sort of really uh, sort of in depth, like uh, like getting diet samples or putting satellite trackers or putting depth. Uh, monitors on, on, on these birds that's uh, uh the, the thing with, with with seabirds that i think is quite different from many of these terrestrial birds Is they disappear into an environment which is fairly hostile for humans we can bob around on a boat but any of those of, of us who are on flock can see how quickly these birds can can travel out of sight so to to monitor these things we we normally do uh we rely quite heavily on on, on trackers and, and all sorts of uh, loggers, be it depth or diving in the Cape of uh, sort of diving loggers in the when it comes to things like like Cape Gannets. So sort of monitoring from scientists can be fairly mundane um, all the way to, to dealing with the, these really fancy high end techniques.
0: And then how do you feel that your scientific foundation has contributed to your love of birds? And also, how can normal birders grow in this area?
2: I think science has given me sort of this, multi, seeing these birds as these multi-dimensional organisms. I mean, if you, if you have just started birding, um, these birds are just something that, you, that you're going to go out, you're going to look at. You might spend an hour, hour or two with them. There might just be another tick or a note in your in your field guide or your notebook or in bird laster or ebird or whatever you use but uh, sort of having sort of worked with these birds and 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 read a lot of the, the research like i said they you see them as these multi-dimensional things not just the bird but things that have have evolved to to fill a specific niche and then uh, there's also this time dimension to a bird um, these birds breed and they migrate and they move around and they need to balance all of these sort of really interesting costs sort of most humans don't appreciate the fact that energy is quite hard to come by for most natural organisms we, we're we quite used to just going to the shop um, dropping a few rands or, or dollars or pounds and sort of getting that food and uh, cooking and preparing it but if you're a bird there's only so many hours in the day that you can forage and then with that energy that you have acquired, you need to then decide what you're going to do with it. Are you going to breed? Are you going to migrate? Are you going to malt? And uh, malt was uh, really one of the things I really enjoyed looking at as a, uh, when I was uh, involved with, with research. Birds are quite unique amongst most organisms in that they're the only ones that have to renew their organs of locomotion on an annual basis. Feathers are made of, of keratin and that, uh, that degrades for a while. And, if as a bird you're not renewing those feathers on a regular basis, you're not gonna be a bird for, for much longer. But uh, to regrow those feathers every, depending on the size you are, uh, every year, sometimes twice a year uh, with the larger birds, uh, some of the feathers only renewed every sort of two to three years. Um, there are these uh, really interesting decisions that have to be made. I know a lot of guys who are into photography these days are quite annoyed by that bird flying over that isn't molt and it doesn't have that perfect wing line. But for me, I'm always sort of interested in why that bird is molting at, at that time and what uh, sort of uh, when I say decisions is sort of these uh, sort of intuitive, instinctual decisions that uh, the bird has had to make physiologically in order to facilitate molting at that time. And then I think the other thing that birders can, can do, uh, we, we spoke a bit about uh, field guides and birding apps, and uh, a, a lot of people, they'll, they'll grab that field guide, they will go out birding, they will find that, uh, the bird they're looking at in the, in the bulk. But uh, the, there's so many birders that I've come across that haven't read the introduction of, of the field guide. There's, there's so much juicy information in there. And particularly the birding apps as well, a lot of us rush to sort of start IDing and, and and skip over that that introduction. There's a lot of fantastic, sort of very general biological information in there. Since we're we're on the uh the topic of of seabirds, Peter Ryan, Seabirds of Southern Africa. He's got some absolutely amazing introductory stuff in the beginning. So but my advice if you if you want to sort of learn a bit a bit of uh, bird biology is is go back to those field guides, go straight to to the beginning, read the, the those first few pages of, of introduction, and uh, um, I, I think that will will set you up for for success. Um, and there's also uh, fantastic introductory books out there. My personal favorite is Birds: The Inside Story by the the Loons. So much amazing stuff in there. It's a short, uh, fairly uh, easy to follow, easy to to read book. Highly highly recommended. I got a copy on my. Uh, on my shelf alongside all of the the, the fancy peacock and sassel and robins and everything else I, I have. But yep, that's absolutely amazing. Another book I can highly recommend is Essential Birding by by Peter Ryan, uh, where he he delves into a lot of the, the biology and also teaches you how to be a, a birder as well. So, but besides the field guides and the apps and all the fantastic fancy peacock stuff, I would highly recommend looking up birds inside story. And then uh, Peter Ryan's uh, Essential Birding.
0: So you're involved in Cape Town Pelagics. And what I love about this company is that the, it has a conservation focus that's attached to us. So tell us a little, bit more, a little bit more about Cape Town Pelagics.
2: So we are based in Cape Town. At the moment, we run our trips out of Simonstown. Uh, we've been going for well over two decades. And uh, I think uh, we, we have this very strong ethos of, of giving back because... Uh, the, the founder of the company a lot of the early guides and the present guides come from a conservation or a research or a science background so the, the, there's uh, when we when we go out there it's more than than just uh sort of going out and, and showing birds when we are behind that trawler we we make we bring people's attentions to the bird scaring lines and and tell people a, a, a bit about that showing that uh just small little things uh and relatively sort of cheap things can can make huge differences. A lot of people think uh, these uh, projects uh, always have to cost millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions. I mean that is true in in the case of these really ambitious uh, sort of cutting edge uh, projects like Mars Free Marion. That is rightfully going to going to cost uh, sort of tens of of millions. But the bird-scaring lines that are have to be uh, deployed behind boats fishing in South African waters to put those things together literally cost a, a, a couple of hundred rands, uh, and for those who kind of think in pounds and, and and dollars, it's uh, sort of literally a sort of a couple of Starbucks cups of coffee have, have caused uh, us to reduce seabird bycatch in Southern African waters by well over 90%, I can't remember the exact figures, but it's in the high 90% and it's through just sort of small little things. It's literally a uh, a length of rope with other pieces of knotted rope dropping down and a traffic cone uh, tied to the end that acts as a brake that keeps the the line taut. Yeah, sort of not much of the, it's sort of fairly user-friendly so that the, uh, there is fairly high compliance amongst the local fishermen. It doesn't take much for them to literally just toss that traffic cone and length of rope over the end, keeps those albatrosses away from the, the hauling cables uh, and keeps those birds protected, conserved and allows us to to go out and and, and see these birds. And as a company, we have donated uh, quite a substantial amount of money to the Albatross Task Force over its existence. Um, I think uh, sort of well over 100,000 rand uh, with with uh, sort of more coming up once we are sort of back on our uh, financial legs after after COVID, we've been uh, running at uh, uh, our, our trips at at cost price. But uh, once um, we, we're getting back up to to numbers, that conservation fund of ours should start uh, filling up again, and we we should be making a, a nice contribution towards something.
0: So we had this amazing experience on on the Flock to Marion cruise, and I'm sure a lot of people. Who went on the cruise have a new or a greater love for seabirds. So, let's look at what's uh, let's look at what birders can do following the cruise. So, the thing is that birders have different financial resources, resources and equipment. And we were talking about this yesterday, but I feel that if your expectations as a birder don't match your resources and your equipment, you can end up disappointed.
2: Absolutely. So, firstly, I'd like to say hello to all of the the new petrol heads. It's a uh... Uh, it's a term we use within uh, the sort of seabirding fraternity where petrol is spelt with uh, two E's and, and no O. Uh, the joke will probably be lost on our uh, North American listeners, but uh, sort of welcome. So, yo, know, um, d- depending on on sort of where you are in your, your birding journey, depending on your resources, you don't necessarily have to suddenly uh, run out, book that pelagic, and it would be fantastic if you, if you did for myself and the, the other guides. But uh, I think when it it, it comes to, to 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 doing this, we had discussed it yesterday, that your local beach is as good a place to to start. In fact, in many ways, it's are uh, um, the, uh, the local South African beaches have, have really been holding their own against the the sort of small boat inshore pelagics and the, and the deeper pelagics. I, I think when a lot of guys get started with with seabos, they, they want to start running before actually, They've sort of learned to to crawl. For a lot of guys, seabirding and seabirds are a completely new taxa. Most guys have uh, have a, a sort of a terrestrial background. So seabirds are, are, are somewhat of a sort of a birding culture shock. And I, and I think we should never underestimate the importance of having a good baseline, having a good knowledge of the common stuff. In the in the long run, that's how you you're gonna pick up the the rarities is by Knowing your local gulls, knowing your local turns, your cormorants, uh, the sort of inshore coastal stuff, getting to to know that that first, and then uh, using that as a as, as a foundation, and then building up up uh, sort of from there. And uh, for for those guys who have uh, started uh, and have got a little bit of that knowledge under the belt. And that they do want to start going for these rarities, beaches and coastal wetlands, like I said, have really been holding their own recently. Just a, a few sort of examples just in the last few, few years, like uh, St. Lucia Beach, St. Lucia Wetland have had all sorts of fantastic things. Lesser Frigatebird, Gulbal Tern, Lesser Crested uh, Terns, uh, notties, frigate Frigatebirds, all sorts of fantastic things off the KZN Coast. You being a a Mams and Toti boy, I'm sure you're absolutely gutted to have uh, sort of missed out on that potential frigate uh, Christmas Island uh, frigate bird. I, I think we're all uh, hurting by looking at those those photographs and wish we had that time machine and we could travel back and, and 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 sort of twitch that bird. And and going a little further down the the coast, I mean, there there are plenty of places in the Eastern Cape that just sort of jump to to mind the. The sundays river Mouth, with the Sooty gull cape Recife has always been a classic site for all sorts of these fantastic uh, uh subtropical seabirds that that like to to show up uh, particularly Sooty and, and bridal turn rosier turn damra turn um are, are just some of the the sort of headliners at, at cape Recife and moving down to the cape obviously Mossel bay made the headlines in the last couple of weeks with. Uh, First laughing gull for for the region, if not for sub-Saharan Africa, and then moving to my my sort of home turf, my local patch of, of Strunfontein Surridge Works. Just the oh, just to try and rattle off some of the, the the amazing stuff we've had in the last few years. Franklin's gull, uh, lesser crested turn, elegant turn. Uh, lesser black-backed gull. Uh, we've even had some uh, um, some pelagic uh, species, typical pelagic species, in the wetland as well. Uh, Jaegers. There was a a giant petrel that showed up in amongst the the ducks um, a couple of uh, weeks just before flock. So it just shows that don't underestimate those those your, your sort of local local spots. You don't have to worry about seasickness. Just uh, grab your bins. Uh, um, and 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 head down, just start working those those groups where you're likely to to start picking up some uh not just local but sort of national and sub-regional gigas and and megas. And
0: I think the guys that are picking that up a lot are very often are guys that are going back to those places again and again and again. And I, I just was having a chat to someone the other day and I don't know what the statistics are, it'd be quite interesting to know how many of these rarities have actually been discovered by somebody who goes and atlases their local patch or just goes and atlases certain places again and again and again. And because they have such a familiarity with what they see all the time, as soon as they see something that is different, straight away, it it just stands out. And I think that local knowledge really creates this great foundation for becoming a better birder.
2: I absolutely a- agree with that, and and, and I think that the big lesson in in birding, as with with any other pursuit that you want to become good at, you you got to put in the you got to put in the hours. Uh, there's no way of, of getting around that. There's no sort of easy way of, uh, of of putting on on big numbers. If you're a lister, you you you've got to put in that time. You have got to go work your local patch, um, and uh, explore new patches, and, and just just put in the in, in the time. All of the, the, the sort of big names in uh, local birding, these are the guys who are out there every single weekend, not just waiting for those rarities to show to show up, but going down to their, their local wetlands, going down to their local patch or um, beach or bit of forest, and just sort of going and just uh, sort of repetition, repetition, repetition. And, and eventually by putting in the hours, like you said, you're going to learn what's common and then suddenly that, uh, that, that sort of new special is going to pop out just by the, the fact that you've got all of this uh, knowledge that you've gathered over all of those hundreds of thousands of hours that you put into uh, getting to know what's sort of local, common and expected in your area.
0: And I can imagine, obviously, when you know we were speaking about a Mams and Toti where the Christmas potential Christmas Island frigate bird showed up. You know, if you go there on almost any day, we've got a nice size turn roost. Nothing like the Cape's turnroos, but you know, you get your greater crested turns, little turns, common turns. Um, you know, your your normal variety now and then. You get a uh, now and then you get uh, to something else. But you know, the the temptation when you when you go there is to almost just look through the binoculars and to kind of scan along quickly. And to move on, say, so, well, there's nothing there's nothing special here. And I think that when you you spend time often like that, it's the opportunity to like almost what you've alluded to already is to grow deeper in your knowledge, to spend time watch behavior, look for plumage variations between there. If there's a bird that looks a bit different, ask the right questions. And I think that going back to that scientific thing, I actually remember someone who was an ornithologist said the the best way to grow in that scientific way is just to ask the right questions. Just when you see something, don't just say, well, the feathers are different ask why are the feathers different and then you know maybe it's also an opportunity instead of just saying what bird is this i'm i know i'm looking at a great aggressive turn here but i noticed the feathers are a bit different post online and, and there's a whole lot of people out there that would love to jump in and and probably comment and, and you and it's an opportunity to learn and understand the bird on a, on a, a much deeper way
2: I, I think the the big lesson that i think any birder regardless of your skill level can 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 take is the uh is this whole sort of idea of, of looking closer, and, and, and that I think applies on a whole bunch of levels. From the the guy or or gal who's just started out, and they uh, have got their first field guide, and they are in their garden, local wetland park, or wherever they they choose to start. Just if you if you think you've you've nailed the ID of that that bird, just just look closer. Just just go through, read all that that. That text in your field guide. So many people just look at the plate. Yeah, it, it looks right for um species X, Y, or Z, tick it off uh, or log it and then and then go on. But there's so much juicy information hidden in uh in the text on the on that in most field guides, are sort of opposite that that plate. Just sort of read through. There's been a lot of just sort of getting off the seabird angle. There've been a lot of posts on. The various social medias about people getting confused between spotted and Cape eagle Isles. I Had a a, a chat with uh, one of the local sort of birding fundies, and he reckons he that most people who have a Cape eagle owl ticked on the, on their list uh, have probably seen um, a spotted eagle owl with with orange eyes. And uh, by by just sort of going back, just reading the accounts of of those things in most field guides that that's when that warning comes out about well the orange eyes aren't the aren't the clincher that uh that we thought it used to to be so like i said look look closer and when it comes to guys and uh and birders and sort of anybody who is, is fairly far along their their birding journey you just sort of look look closer like when we you are scanning that that roost just sort of don't assume that uh, that they're all um, one one species uh, sort of go through do your general scan and then start working each just saying am I hundred confident that I'm, I'm dealing with a, a common turn and then go on to the next one and then when you get to something and and it doesn't feel right then sort of put those those basic ID f- uh, skills uh, and that basic field craft into into practice and sort of work the the problem sort of Take a stab at what you think it is. Uh, check in the field, guy. Check the potential pitfall species. Uh, work that problem when you're happy. Go onto the onto on the next one, and after a while, that becomes instinctive. And and even us, uh guys who are in the in the guiding field is uh, as well. I I think that this whole thing about about look closer, um, really sort of it pays dividends at the end of the day. Just uh, sort of yep, that bird looks interesting um, and don't just sort of wave it uh, off as, oh, it's just probably just another X, Y or Z. Just sort of lift the bins again, put the scope on it again and just be 100% sure. You don't want to be sort of put, putting your head on the pillow at the end of the night thinking, oh, I really wish I'd looked at that that strange looking hooded vulture in, in that tree again and, and wonder whether you've missed out on, uh, on that life or Egyptian vulture.
0: So there's a lot of people that have s- that possibly know about pre-birding preparation or going to the field garden, if you're going on a trip, learning calls and looking at specific species that you might encounter. We know about that. We, we've also touched now on field skills, what you, need to know, what you need to be doing on the field, taking your time, looking through the birds you see, learning more about what you are seeing. But do you have anything that you do post-birding when you get back home? Is there things that birders could possibly do after birding that's also going to grow their understanding of birds?
2: The, the one thing I, I, I tend to do, and I've I, I especially been doing on a more regular basis now that, uh, especially during lockdown, having not had a, a lot of tours and maybe not uh, sort of having uh, done as much birding as I uh, would uh, pre, pre-COVID, is sort of going back I've got plenty of reference books uh, I've got the the big Robert seven It's just sort of sort of going back and, and just sort of just constantly refreshing just making sure that the these things are are there and and I, and I think uh, anybody who who's getting into birding now are uh, we, we, we're living in a golden age of birding we, there are just so many resources that just weren't available even 10 15 20 years ago. A, a good example is is all the social media and the the the, uh, the sort of proliferation of of digital photography. Uh, when I started birding, it was all sort of slide uh, film and uh, nothing was 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 automatic. I'm really sort of dating myself here, but uh, the, the you might have had twenty four or thirty six uh, sort of shots on that that roll of film, and you weren't going to waste it on. On something you weren't worried about, but the these days there's so many guys that, that just sort of go out and and sort of they're not sure about things. They they do the right thing. They they snap a pic and then uh, put it on social media, which I think is the other thing that has absolutely revolutionized birding. Yeah, you you've got millions of people on the the other end of that post who um are are happy to 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 sort of comment and and help with 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 ideas. Uh, the BirdLife uh, South Africa sort of social media pages are fantastic for that. All all of the the other sort of portals as well. I mean your sort of portals as well, podcasts, everything. There's just there's just more information, and I think we know what to to do with. Um, another big favorite of mine is a website called Xeno Canto, and it's basically a global library of bird calls. So I'll I'll, I'll go out. There'll be um, a, A bird giving a call that i'll recognize or this will go i think there will be a call that i just don't recognize and you sort of uh eventually sort of come onto that bird and then it's like wow that's a call i've never heard whatever species give give before it's not listed in the field guide um i'll come home go to to zeno canto pull up the the species and then just start listening to some of the other calls um, I'm not quite into the, the bird recording side yet. I know uh, lots of birders uh, will, will, will go out birding with a parabolic uh, microphone and, um, and a little recorder and, and upload everything. But, but yeah, just sort of constant refreshments, sort of constantly keeping all of those, the, those things. And, and if I'm going birding in an area I've never been before, I'll just sort of thumb through the field guide, just go through the accounts on the app, and then um, also I've sort of made playlists with some nice things with you Xenocantos. Know, you can download calls as well. So just download two, three sort of MP3 files, uh, make a playlist, stick it on my phone. So when I'm going uh, to that patch of forest that I may not have visited in several years, the, the night before or a few nights before when I'm sort of sort of sitting, getting ready for the day, I can just put those playlists on and then just, just just listen, and then almost uh, so it of becomes a, a a game. And I, uh, I know we've sort of touched on uh, this whole issue of gamification in uh, in our discussions, but before this podcast, and I, I think it would be an interesting thing to explore maybe in full in a in a full podcast. But for for those that don't know, gamification is this idea of of taking something and, and making it a a, a game. Where even though that's not the the main uh, sort of reason behind behind that, so all of these fantastic challenges that are on um, uh, something like BirdLasser and, and eBird and all of these sort of annual challenges that some of the bird clubs have, that's a good example of gamification. So the the the, the sort of people playing the sort of quote unquote game gets the advantage of. Testing their skills, seeing how they rank against the other guys, but on the back end, you've you've got this fantastic data, this fantastic citizen science outputs that are that are coming out of that. So by sort of making things fun, you can you can generate uh, sort of fantastic research uh, and and make the whole process uh, uh, sort of fairly user friendly, f- fairly fun to, uh, for, for everybody involved.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We really hope you are enjoying the episode. If you would like to support us and help grow the show, please can we ask that you do two things. Firstly, please share the show on your favorite social media channel. Tell us why you enjoy the show and be sure to tag us in the post. This is one of the best ways to help get the word out about the podcast and bring more exposure to the guests that are featured and the conservation issues that are covered secondly to help us cover the costs and to improve the quality of the show please can you consider buying us a virtual coffee or two this is a quick safe and easy way to contribute to the show you will find a link for this in the notes of the show
0: and then obviously the next level we we can talk about we're never going to get through everything we're going to talk about just me going a little bit different but it's it's been cool it's been it's been a fantastic chat and I think this definitely lends itself to a Uh, second podcast so Vincent you are signed up for a second podcast along the way just letting you know but um, the next kind of level that we've we've spoken about uh, about looking at the birds on the beach but the next level is almost the breakers and beyond and there's different equipment demands for that there's different techniques that are needed so can you chat us through that what equipment would be needed for that what techniques would be looking at and where are some spots that people could potentially go look at seabirds from from the land?
2: I think we can, uh, sort of, depending on sort of your, your sort of interests and, uh, and, and sort of what you want, the, the, the sort of various sort of, you can kind of think of it like layers of an onion. The, the first layer we discussed is, is your local beach, your local coastal wetland. The next layer art is just seeing what's just a little bit beyond the, 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 the breakers. And for me, that was one of my first real wow experiences when it, uh, it came to, to seabirds. Um, up to that point, I'd been enamored with all this talk of islands and, and doing pelagics. But a, a friend of mine sort of just, we, we just went down to the beach and I said, Well, what are we looking at today? So, no, no, we're doing shearwaters and petrels and giant petrels and skuas and jaegers. And I said, But we're never going to get them. You, you need to go 20, 30, 40, 50 kilometers out. And he said, No, 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 just, just look a little beyond the break. And there were all these little brown birds sort of going back. And he then got me onto, how to identify these things um, using using flight patterns and and all those things and that was done with relatively simple equipment just a a, a pair of 10 by 42 binoculars that weren't the greatest ones a, at that time but they were good enough that you could sort of make out how the bird was flying and you could then make that connection between uh, how that bird was behaving and and, and getting an, an id the the sort of next level up from that would be sort of getting a getting a nice scope and then looking slightly further out. the The best places for these uh, what are known as sea watches are particularly headlands. So when seabirds tend to move along the coast, they don't like to to get sort of too deep into bays. so you've got these rocky headlands and the birds will tend to move from headland to headland and, and avoid the, the sort of shallower bay waters so any any headlands uh, are a fantastic place to to sort of suit yourself around the the cape we've got plenty of fantastic uh, spots that I can just sort of briefly mention so the whole area around komiki um, sort of past uh, Sutvata to uh, Scarborough and then Oliphant's Boss and then down to Cape Point, you'll you'll quite often have birds sort of hop between headlands and then from there the birds then tend to sort of fly across False Bay and then they will sort of skim the headlands, so uh, Stony Point Penguin Colony at Betty's Bay, a lot of people just go for their African penguins, get their four marine cormorants, uh, sort of tick them off and then, and then disappear, but uh, any winter trip to Stony Point, after you've ticked your penguin, ticked your four cormorants and the odd gull in turn, just look beyond the breakers. I've had three species of albatross from the boardwalk there, both giant petrels, sort of a massive variety of, of things. So you don't necessarily need to sort of grab uh, grab a place on a, on a pelagic in order to uh, to get to see these things. You, you can get them from the from the shore. And then in terms of of, of optics, obviously optics are, are, are crucial yeah, because we are dealing with with fairly long distances. So binoculars are, will, will will get the, get the job done for the closer stuff but obviously a, a scope is, is is essential. Just a little bit of advice on on how I use my, my scope. So the, the first thing is if you, you do have an eyepiece that has multiple magnifications, always start wide open just to get a good sort of general global sense of what's happening out at sea and then sort of picking up the, the movement and then you can start uh, tracking the bird and then start uh, uh, dialing in that, that magnification. The big enemy of using a scope is, is the wind. Um, ironically, that's when the best uh, sea watching is—is is when you've got these very strong onshore winds. So any wind that is blowing towards where you're, whichever coast you're you're on, that's fantastic. But the problem is that it really sets up a, a quite a hectic shake in in your scope. So um, the the way of getting around that is obviously keeping your magnification as low as possible but uh, obviously you're gonna see something that you're really gonna to wanna to get, uh, get up close, really uh, crank up that magnification. So the, the thing is you can do is just uh, uh, try, sort of set up a position behind a rock, just get out of the wind, try to get some of that shutter um, out of the, the system. What I personally do is I use my car as a, as a hide. So what I'll do is we'll uh, find a, an area that, that looks fairly good, and then angle the car so that the wind is hitting it from the, the side. And then what I'll do is then just roll down the window, just slightly, just enough to get the, uh, the scope looking out and not through an extra pane of, uh, of, of potentially dirty glass. And, and uh, just sort of using the car to take the, the brunt of that, of, of that wind. And the other fantastic uh, bonus of that is that you can have that uh, flask of hot coffee um, you can keep relatively warm, particularly if you're doing any NVC watches uh, off the, the cape where we have these relatively cold wet winters. The, sometimes it doesn't always always work. you you sort of wish you had that, that extra layer. you wish you had an extra cup of coffee in the bottom of that that flask. but uh, most of the time the the hide really does uh, um, well, using a car as a hide really does uh, offer terrific uh, terrific re- results. And I suppose um, you could use that if you if you're going down you're just uh, sort of looking at your local patch of gulls or terns or cormorants uh, at a beach, just sort of get the get the car angled in the, in, the, in the right area or just use the side of the car as a bit of a bit of a windbreak and then you can really then uh, sort of concentrate on on working that that, that sort of group of seabirds uh, without that incessant wind shake.
0: And then you know the last question, which will kind of be the outer layer we're gonna speak about in this episode. They obviously are further off. You can go travel further even if you want. But you know, for those that are listening to the show that have the financial means to say that love to do a pelagic. I know we have pelagics hang off of Durban, which have some fantastic seabirds, but you know, the Cape in terms of numbers is probably one of the best places to do pelagic trips out for a day. So if somebody wants to do a pelagic trip with um, Cape Town pelagics how can they get hold of you guys and what sort of thing can they expect to see and yeah what sort of preparation should they do for 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 going out for a day with you guys?
2: in, in terms of getting hold of us we we've got uh, social media platforms on on Facebook our uh, webpage Capetownpelagics.com is our main portal for for booking. I will uh, sort of leave my details with with Adam. So you can uh, sort of get hold of me uh, sort of that way, but uh, the, the the thing I find uh, when sort of people are thinking ab- about a pelagic before it even comes to what well, I'm worried about, I might not uh, be able to ID uh, whatever seabirds are are, are out there. The, the sort of the the elephant in the room is this issue of of seasickness. I've I've done hundreds of, of pelagic trips. Uh, I've been doing this for. For several years now sort of well sort of almost going into my second decade of doing doing pelagics and seasickness is always number one it, uh, like I said more so than uh, sort of ids and people worrying about whether they can tell a share water and a, and a petrol so I, I think the, the sort of uh, the, the way to sort of get over the issue of, of seasickness is that I find that most of it is 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 sort of mental. People haven't gone onto sort of boats before. it's a it's a novel thing. they they're worried that they're gonna feel a little unwell. And then in, uh, in some people it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that they go, out, oh, the the boat's a little unsteady. They have a funny feeling in their in their stomach and they say, oh, the seasick is on the way and then they sort of dwell on every single symptom that that's sort of sort of coming along. So, in terms of, of, of our stats, and I sort of on my trip, I sort of uh, keep a, a little record of sort of how many people sort of haven't been feeling well. And the the vast majority, I mean, we're talking probably high ninety nine percent of people who who do a trip and who do a trip for a, for a, a first time, it's it seasickness is is not an issue. So, the I think the first thing is kind of banish the those sort of thoughts about uh, sort of not feeling feeling well. Then, it, and I think to sort of achieving that that uh, that sort of that, that that idea of not feeling well, there there are a couple of things you can do. The, the 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 recommendation I would give is is maybe skip that cup of coffee in the in the morning. Skip that caffeinated drink. They they do tend to be quite quite acidic. So if you if you're sort of afraid you're gonna sort of have a, a sensitive stomach, skip anything acidic. Skip that morning. Uh, sort of caffeinated drink tea Uh, and then uh, the thing I always tell people is you've got to eat going out to to sea on an empty stomach you're on a moving boat um, you sort of got that uh, stomach full of acid sort of sloshing around you you need to make sure you have something in your in, in your stomach if you go on any of these research trips you go on any trawler fishermen eat like uh like, like sort of nobody's business. The bacon and eggs, the the sort of heavy greasy food is on the on the top of the, the menu. These guys like to line their stomachs and they keep their their stomachs full all day. So so eat in, before you get on the boat. when we do offer you chips and snacks or whatever, just sort of stick something in your in, in your stomach as, as, as well. It, it does tend to to make a huge difference. And then the other thing is is dressing in, in layers. Uh, there's an old sort of seafarer's adage that you can't be cold and seasick at the, the same time. And, and what I found is that um, it just uh, if people are starting to feel a little unwell, just sort of zip that, uh, that waterproof layer open, just lose some, some body heat, and, and most of the symptoms do tend to, to, to go away. Obviously, I'm not saying that all seasickness is, uh, is in people's minds. It is a, is a real condition um, we have some fantastic seasickness medications on the market. So speak to your physician, speak to your pharmacist, see what they, they recommend, see what has worked for you in the, in the past. And uh, there's absolutely nothing uh, that, that says that you you need to, to try and sort of tough it out and, and not take any medication. When I go on these uh, long several-week cruises, the first thing I do in the first few days is just to to take something very light, try break that mental uh, link between the the movement of the boat and potentially not feeling well. So uh, even the uh, the sort of hardest seafarers amongst us uh, still have that uh, those couple of seasickness tablets just in our pocket, just for for, for the the occasional uh, sort of funny feeling in the stomach.
0: Yeah, Vincent, it's been. So cool to chat to you. I know we could have probably chatted for another uh, half an hour to an hour, but it's been so cool to chat to you, and I want to thank you for your time. Um, it's been awesome, and look forward to chatting in the near
2: future again. It's been absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I've got uh, piles of notes uh, around me, and uh, yeah, we definitely have the makings of a of a sort of a a part two. So um, for the, for those of you who've uh, sort of got to the point that you've worked that local gull and, and turn roost and you have maybe been on flock and you you want to sort of get closer stay tuned for for part two i guess and then uh, we can uh, sort of pick up from uh, where we go to once you have popped that seasickness uh, sort of tablet and you've got your waterproof layers on um, and you've, you've done your, your homework and what we can expect on the sort of close or uh, the close shore, uh, South African pelagics. And then maybe we can chat about some of the, the bucket list, uh, trips that you, you can do, um, around the world and that, uh, uh, maybe some of the harder hardened world listers would, would really love to to, to do as well. So yeah, look, absolutely looking forward to it. I'm sort of excited about, uh, what we, we covered and, uh, what's two, part two, three, four, five might actually uh, sort of end up sort of leading us to, to chat. So, so thank you. Thanks for, for tuning in everyone. And Adam, thanks for having me on. It's been a, been a long time com- coming and hopefully we can do this on a sort of regular basis for the upcoming seasons.
1: We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books' online store to help get all the best birding and nature books into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comment section of this podcast or our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Bird Lasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.